0: Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. We are going to uh, spend uh, one more Sunday for the rest of the year on the book of Acts. Chapter 19 verses 1 through 7 is what we will cover today. And then next two Sundays will be special Advent season themes. Next Sunday we will celebrate it as Candlelight Sunday, which is what we do Uh, what we call it, and we'll reflect on this truth that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And the Sunday after that, we'll spend another Sunday looking at the coming of our Savior and our Redeemer into our world. But today, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, okay? Let's go ahead and read that together. Go ahead and look in your scripture. By the way, today is going to be pretty heavy-duty Bible study. Is that okay? So have your Bibles open, and we're going to look at our Bibles, okay? And... uh, and, and it's going to be a bit sort of theologically a, a little dense, okay? A little dense. So I uh, hope you guys got plenty of sleep and rest and right there. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe?" This is so funny. Because, you know, with Gloria sharing and, and Kimmy, uh, today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what bapt-, uh, and, and No, they, they, no, they replied, we have not even heard that, that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, and that is in Jesus. On hearing this, and by the way, you know, it, I imagine what Paul did is we just have one verse, but what, when Paul said, you know, this was what John's baptism was, and he said you need to believe, we can sort of guess that Paul spent some time as he did in the synagogues, explaining the Old Testament to them on who Christ was, that he was the coming Messiah. So on hearing that, look what happened. On hearing that, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, so then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Today we are introduced to the third missionary journey of Paul, right? He's venturing out to third missionary journey. Okay, there's the map. Can you look up on the map, please? Okay, third missionary journey. Okay, and Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. Now we're going to talk a little bit more next uh, next next time we cover Acts about the city of Ephesus. Interesting city, very interesting city, and and obviously has relevance to us as Paul writes an entire letter to that city. But for us today, we want to spend some time looking at these approximately twelve people who are almost Christian. When I say that, there's not value-cast judgment, okay? I want to be very clear. When we say things like, you know, are you a Christian or that person's not a Christian, in no way in our church do we say, I am better than you. I say this a lot in our church. Non-Christians are much kinder, much more patient, much more loving than Christians sometimes. True? Right? Right? So when we say that they were not Christian, we're not saying, oh, we're better. No, we're just simply saying there are some characteristic attributes to somebody who says that they are a follower of Jesus. And what we see today is 12 people, as we'll see, who were almost Christians. And and we're faced, you guys, today with this very hard truth reality that not everybody who perhaps professes to be Christian actually are. Not everybody who is involved in ministry, serving, or look very uh, religious or spiritual actually are Christian. Jesus himself even one time said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, heal the sick? Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. He says, just because you say, Lord, Lord, give verbal profession, or just because you say, I cast out demons, heal the sick, did some good things, are you a follower of Christ? I know, it's not pleasant to talk about that in church. But the question we need to wrestle with today is, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? When Paul first arrives in Ephesus, he encounters these disciples. Now, some commentators say they were probably disciples of Apollos, the guy that we met in Acts 18. David talked about them. You know, look in your Bibles last Sunday. Because here's what we know about Apollos in verse 25. It said, Apollos knew only the baptism of John. Ta-da! And of course, these disciples only know the baptism of John, right? And in verse 26 in Acts 18, it says that he, uh, he needed more knowledge and instruction in the way of God. So here it is. These disciples of Apollos, perhaps, okay, are in Ephesus. Paul encounters them, and, and we don't know exactly what they didn't know, or what they did know, what faulty knowledge, what lack of knowledge they knew. But Paul interacts with them, and he says, I don't know if you're Christian. And so Paul asks them a couple questions. Now, here's the thing. We don't know exactly why Paul asks the question. Again, I don't think Paul went around and met people and go, have you experienced the Holy Spirit? I don't think that was like his hi, hello line. You know what I mean? I don't think he just went around asking that. I think he spent some time with them. And after a while, I don't know, maybe it was their demeanor. Maybe Paul sensed something in his spirit, in his gut. Maybe there was something too kind of the way that but they said, Oh I don't know. And so Paul asks them the question. This is Saint Paul who said this to the church in Corinth. Check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves. By the way, your Bibles doesn't probably have the capital bold. That's me. Okay? Accentuating. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? That is, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ by his spirit lives in you. Unless, of course, you fail the test. The Bible says over and over in the New Testament, there are identifying external features of genuine Christian discipleship. The Bible says over and over again there are external, genuine, external identifying factors, identifying features, characteristics, attributes to someone who knows Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, the Apostle John, Disciple John, who wrote actually four books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, okay? Gospel of John detailing the life of Jesus. And this is what it says in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he writes this gospel and he says, this is what it means to believe in the one who has come. And check this out. He also wrote three letters. Do you remember what those letters were? They bear his name. First John, second, and third John. Okay? And in these three letters, he essentially articulates, here's what the life of someone who has encountered this Jesus looks like. First, among others, true obedience. True obedience. Jesus said this over and over again, right? He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus says in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The Bible is clear, John says, over and over again. That those who profess but doesn't live a life of obedience to their profession is delusional. If you have genuinely encountered the risen Christ, listen, there will be in you an increasing hatred for sin and an increasing desire for obedience. Every time we talk about obedience in church, like some of you right now, there's this pushback, like, "Eh." because you're obedience and you're fundamental legalistic righteous do do, and just obedience. Uh, But so let me make this very, very clear, very, very clear. In Christ, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Amen. In Christ, we are saved by grace. And grace alone. We are loved unconditionally in Christ. We wholeheartedly in this church reject religion that says, it's because I obey that I'm accepted. That's religion. It's not the gospel. Gospel says, I am accepted in Christ. I am loved in Christ. I am completely wholeheartedly loved and accepted in Christ. Therefore, I obey. But here's the thing. The gospel says, because I'm accepted, therefore, one who has truly encountered Christ, the risen Christ, there will be in you a life of obedience. In other words, if you truly encounter Christ, there will be within you and within me hatred for sin increasing and desire for obedience. How many of y'all are feeling uncomfortable right now? Leah says, me? I'm honest. Can I just say something to you? I'm preaching to myself to me. It bothers me that there isn't more war against sin in me. It bothers me that there isn't a greater sense of battle within me towards sin in my life. Can anybody relate to that? It bothers me that there isn't within me a greater sense of no towards sin in my life. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder, I think about whether spiritual laziness Oh, God's sovereign over all things, and I wish he would just sovereignly take away my lust issue. I wonder sometimes it's it's the victim mentality prevalent in our culture, sort of like, well, if you knew the family I grew up in, Or maybe the victim mentality of, well, you know, the temptations that I face, Peter, you have absolutely no idea. Why is there not more warring against sin in you and sin in me? Why is there this complacent sort of, oh, well, in us? Yeah, Michael says, "Preach it." Can I just be honest. I'm I'm feeling uncomfortable right now because I could just go on and on with this, and I already know within out there there's this thing of some of you going, "Amen, preach," it. and then there are others of you going, "You are making me feel really bad right now." We are called to war against sin. Paul says, put to death, therefore, sin in your life. We are called to put to death, to war, to battle. For some of us, it will take a lifetime of wrestling with certain sins. But we are called to do more than just complain and be complacent. True obedience. Second characteristic attribute is true belief. True belief. Someone who is a genuine follower of Christ doesn't have some you know, belief in vague notions. Oh yeah, Jesus was a good prophet. He was a good man, did some good things. I think he said some wise things that we should follow and emulate. True belief lies at the heart of what it means to be genuine disciples of Christ. In other words, you have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died, rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and is the ascended Lord and coming King who is the Messiah. And you believe that from the depth of your soul third is true love (laughs) a true disciple of christ is marked by the kind of love that has no gap between saying i really really love god and i love my brothers and sisters (laughs) on a typical sunday in our church there are three groups of people there are those who know they're christian there are those who know that they're not Christian. And then there's a large group of people who walk away every Sunday going, every time I hear you preach, I don't know if I am a Christian. <laughs> Darius, can you relate? And you're thinking that right now going, am I a Christian? If you're questioning that, that's a good thing. Here's what Paul says. Oh, I'm sorry, John. John, Let me just go in summing it up. 1 John 1, 5. I didn't, want to, ugh, I didn't want to spend this much time on this. 1 John 1, 5, 7. This, in essence, is a message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. 1 John 1, 5, 7. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another as a sacrifice, blood, jesus god's son purifies us or purges us from all our sin here's pretty straightforward let me sum it up and i'm moving on okay it's pretty straightforward he says if you claim to walk in the light if you are a genuine believer you don't behave different in the dark than when you're in the light if you're a genuine believer of christ you're not different when nobody is looking John says, if I claim to have fellowship with God and yet routinely and unrepentantly walk in the darkness, then I am lying to myself and everybody else, and I don't belong to the truth. And in case you're sitting there going, you sounds like you're talking about perfection. You sounds like you're talking about I need to be, but, because John says that, and then immediately following verses, he says, here's how you also know you are in the light. He says, you're somebody who doesn't claim to be without sin. And he says, here's the gospel, okay? Yes, you need to walk in the light, but when you fail, not if, he says, when, good news, thank you. He says, when you fail, here's the mark of true genuine discipleship. When you fail, we all will, when we fail, we don't, listen, we don't beat ourselves over and over and over again. Not a mark of true discipleship. When we fail, we don't sweep it under the rug. When we fail, we don't ignore it. When we fail, we certainly don't go to God and say, God, I'm going to be good next time and try and procure his favor. When we fail, choose genuine discipleship. When we fail, we go to the cross where all of the answers to our sins are found. And we say, you are faithful and just, and you will forgive and cleanse. So I come Mark of true, genuine discipleship. <sighs> Is that good news? You're sitting there going, I don't know if I'm a Christian, man. Good. I want you to think. I need you to think. Verse 2 says, ah, so did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And by the way, a theological. I told you, put it in a theological hands, okay? Okay? Some people say, Peter... That's a wrong interpretation. They were Christian, and what's happening here is what we call the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that they were genuinely born again, and what's happening here is that they needed to receive the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, like we all Christians need to do. So you've got Christians who are, some people will say, genuine Christians, but they haven't received the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. So at some point down the line, they need to receive the... The problem with that reading is when they say, no, we have not received the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't go, oh, okay, then let me lay my hands on you and pray so that the Holy Spirit will come. He goes, whoa! you haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit? Well, what, what baptism did you receive? He's asking a foundational question. It's like, he said, how would you become a Christian then? Why? Because in Paul's mind, he got it clear. You can't be a Christian without having an experience, an encounter of the Holy Spirit. Nobody in the early church would have gone around talking about being a Christian without this experience and encounter of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. Do you remember Peter when he preached at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the what? Say it with me. You will receive... The gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for whom the Lord our God will call. Paul emphatically says it is impossible to be a true believer without the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit in us. You're going, well, where did Peter get that from? I'll tell you where he got that from. He got that from Jesus. What did Jesus say? John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus one time said, i tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you got to be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can't be a genuine Christian without this experience and encounter of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, Paul picks up then this theme, and he takes it further. He goes, not only do you need the Holy Spirit to be a Christian, you need the Holy Spirit to live as a Christian. What? Oh, this is going to wreck some of y'all this morning. Because look what Paul said, Romans chapter eight, verse nine: You Christian are controlled not by sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit, by the, by the way, every time I say the Spirit, I'm going to go, Spirit, and I'm going to go high as I can, okay? Spirit, because I'm trying to accentuate. He's saying it's important, okay? If the Spirit lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if the Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, and yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised you, Christ, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Those are big ifs. Pay attention to what is an if? Is it a preposition? What is that? It's a conjunction. <laughs> Daniel Spara, you got me today. I was like, oh I was wrong. It's a conjunction. It's a prep- I was right the first time. It is a preposition. Don't mess with an international folk. You know what I'm saying? You mess me up like that. Those are big ifs. Listen, listen. Paul is not saying, hey, hey, you need the spirit, you know, if you want, you know, sort of moral reformation. Paul's not saying, hey, you need the spirit if, you know, you need a little, you need a little pick-me-up to get through this day. Paul's not saying, hey, you need the Spirit if, you know, you kind of you need some self-help. Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. And if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you can't live the Christian life. Let's wreck y'all this morning. Because can we just be, look, it's just, Take your time, Michael, okay. This is so foundational to the Christian life that I am blown away when I talk to Christians who have no knowledge, no sense of this, okay? The Christian life is not just difficult. The Christian life is impossible. If you find the message of Jesus easy to digest check the label on the box check the label on the box because you're probably consuming a diluted version of Christianity Christian life is not just hard difficult, extremely strength, Christian life is capital I, capital M p- impossible Christian life is impossible I'm not going to ask you to spell that. Can anybody here say amen to that this morning? Christian life is impossible. That's why there are many of you sitting out there today, frustrated, in despair, afraid, guilt-ridden. Because you're like so many Christians today who know what I should do, but there's a million miles of gap between what I should do and what I actually do. Yeah, your pastor said it. That's your experience. I know. We know what we should say, what we should think, what we should talk, what we should do, what we should behave, but actually doing it, living it, another, another deal. So here's what we do. Here's what we do to to, to kind of deal with that. Some of us just drop out. And some of you are here after months and weeks and years of dropping out. We just drop out because we go, I'm tired of feeling guilty. I'm tired of failing at this stupid thing called the Christian life. And I just don't want to do it anymore. And we walk away with a little sense of, at least I'm not a hypocrite. For some of us, some of you, the way we deal with it, we just fake it. You know? We just fake it. We master the lingo of Christianese. You know, oh, praise the Lord. You know what, I'm sorry, but I really don't like the phrase, God is good, all the time, all the time. Because you know what, I honestly want to go to some of those people and go, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Like we think it's a kind of magic thing, if we say it enough, God is good, all the time. If we say it enough, but no, no, no. So some of us mastered the art of Christianese. Put on our plastic fake Christian smiles. We come to church. And we live in (laughs) despair. Some of us, we just sort of cope. You know? The possibly, so we just learn to cope. You know, is this as good as it's going to get? You know, I'd rather be out there actually doing that, but I don't want to go to hell. So I'm just going to grip my teeth and offer you, Jesus. And I feel like Jesus going, no thank you. And then some of us, we just lower the bar. That's why it's easily digestible. We just lower the bar. We know the difference between good and evil, but we don't want to do good, so we change the definition of what evil is. We know... (laughs) We know... See, some of you guys think I, like, prepare to say these things. I don't, man. It comes out, and then I go, all right. I know. Look, we know the difference between good and evil. This is, you, this is you and me today. Come on. Let's just be honest. Can we do some soul surgery here today? Heart surgery. You and I know the difference between what God says, good and evil, but we don't want to do the good, so we lower the bar and we change the definition of what evil is. And go, yeah, I can do that. Right, that's not that. All of these people have one thing in common. You know what it is? They come to realize, Christian life, you can't do it. I can't do it. Can I get an amen to that? You know what the good news is? God never asked us to. (laughs) What? God never asked us to. But what about, and you're flipping through your verses, and what about these comments? Listen, listen, listen. This is what I may want to say. God never asked us to. There's only one person who can pull this thing off, the cult Christian life. He, there's only one person who not only did, but can do and be all that God has called us to do and be. His name? Jesus Christ. He is so good at it, they named this Christian life thing after him. <laughs> is that good news? Christian, somebody's clapping. You not clap to that. Some Christian life. Is only possible because, yeah, don't lower the standard. Christian life is only possible because Christ, who lives in us by His Spirit, lives through us this Christian life for us. That's the Christian life. Now, every single one of us will need to go through a crisis of failure. Mine, I went through it in seminary. (laughs) I was in seminary first year doing the christian thing and i came from a really intense spiritual environment you know so i knew all the answers knew what to do you know i knew the path to take had the bible verses to memorize but i just couldn't do it i just couldn't do it and being a perfectionistic sort of very you know i got tired of failing i got tired of failing So you know what i did one day i had it out with god i said to god i said i quit i honestly did and it wasn't like a game you know god i quit so I was like, no, I quit. I'm done, God. And I just resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to be good at this. I- I'm done. I'm not exaggerating. I said, I'm done. I'm done with this thing called a Christian life. And you know what I really thought was going to happen? I thought I was going to get a good lecture from my heavenly father saying, I went to the cross for you. Can't you just pull yourself up and try one last time? Instead of hearing that, you know what I heard? And <laughs> I said, I'm done. I heard God going. Good. I'm serious. I'm done. Good. But you don't understand, God. I don't want to try. Good. Let me do what you can. You guys, the Christian life, God never come. and it says, Try. The Christian life is God comes and says, die. Christian life is not try. To try is to fail, and to fail is to try. I'm preaching the choir this morning. Can anybody relate to this? Don't y'all look at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. You're like a freak. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? To try is to fail, and to try harder is to fail more. And so God never comes to us and says, try harder. He says, die. Die to what, God? Die to your self-will. Die to your self-righteousness. Die to your self-sufficiency. Die to your self-strength. Die to yourself, not try. Die. Because it is when you die that Christ can live in us and through us. Christian life is not about trying harder. It's about dying deeper. That's the paradox of the Christian life. It is to those who learn to die that they can live. It's not us trying to be like Christ, but Christ being Christ in and through us. I put a couple passages. Some of y'all need to go home and memorize this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, 27 says this. This is the mystery. And in case you're wondering, going, how does that happen, Peter? How do you do that? It's a mystery. I'll give you a little how at the very end. But you need it. how many of our are feeling the thing down here like, oh, it's so bad, but it's so good? Anybody? Okay, I'm the only one again. Okay, Galatians chapter 1, verse 26, 27. This is a mystery that has now been made known to the saints. Doom God willed to make known what is the richest of the glory of his mystery among us. Everybody say this with me. Ready? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's your hope of glory? It's what? Christ in you. One more. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in Knee. I knew all these passages. Like some of you, I knew them. I memorized them. But it wasn't until I came to that crisis of faith when I said, God, I just can't. And God said, I know. And it was like an, it, for me, it happened almost like an instant where I fell. You guys, it was almost like I fell from a tower of self into ocean of Christ. And that free fall was the most exhilarating experience of my life. Can you imagine that? Some of you picture that? The life I live in the body, listen listen to your Bible. The life I live in the body, I live by, and some of you read this this way, I live by trying a little harder. I live by praying a little more. I live by making sure I do my quiet times. I live by making sure I do good enough things. I live by what? Listen, Bible says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life in your willpower is impossible. It's a dead end. i tell you how much we've been influenced by this. Bad theology in the church. How many of y'all are familiar with the poem, Footprints in the Sand? <laughs> y'all going, here's my bookmark. You know? Footprints in the sand, you know. For those of y'all going, what the heck is Footprints in the Sand? It's this little poem, you know, that us good Christian kids learned, like we're in college, you know. Or like when I was in college, you were like three. But anyway, you know, we, we learned this Footprints poem. It, here's what the poem says. Okay, there's apparently like, like three versions, Michael. Like it's been expanded to like, you know. But here's the gist of the Footprints in the Sand, okay. It's this poem that says, one night. I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. And many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. Some of you are tearing up going, oh, that's so good. It's not. <laughs> Poem goes, in each sentence, I, and some of you are like, put it in my pocket, footprints. <laughs> some of you have this like embroidered on your Bible, I know. In each scene, I noticed footprints. What's that? Okay, the poem. Okay, so the poem, I'm sorry. The poem says, in each each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was only one. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life when I was suffering through anguish, sorrow, and defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there's only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, The years when you have seen only one set of footprints. My child, it's when I carried you. To which all of us go, Oh, he carried me. Do you know why that... That that poem, I'm not making a lie because I know some of you had helped. Do you know why that poem is so destructive to us? Because it's never, ever been two sets of footprints. Ever. There's not a single day moment that goes by when you and I co pilot with Jesus. There is never a day in our lives, do you understand? That's why we that's why we read the Bible, go, I'm gonna try really hard, pull myself up by bootstraps, and you know, follow the Christian life. And then when I hit a bump, when I go through a hard time, Jesus, I'm gonna need you. And Jesus says, There's never been a time when you walked with me. I carried you the whole time. The whole time. If you and I think we're co-piloting and we only let Jesus pilot when we're in trouble, on a clear blue sky, we're going to crash. What in the world are you and I thinking that we can do this thing called the Christian life, walking out of here going, I think, it is, say it with me, impossible apart from Do you know that? Do you know that? <laughs> I apologize if I funded anybody with the Footprints form, because it helped me through college, too. No, no, I'm being serious. I'm being serious. <sighs> Michael, I, I don't know. Do you receive the Holy Spirit? We gotta go on, we gotta go on, we gotta go on. Uh, 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 And their answer is no, no. So then what does Paul say? He says, what baptism did you receive? Notice he doesn't say, well, then you need to, you know, have my, have me lay my hands on you so you can receive power. Listen, Paul's saying your lack of an experience of the Holy Spirit gets to this deeper foundational truth that you didn't really encounter Christ. And the reason why Paul can push them on that is because he experienced Remember when he was converted and he was baptized, what Peter preached on Acts 2 came true for Paul. He was repented, he baptized, he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit, Acts 9, comes upon Paul. And so he's got it clear. See, if, if you are a genuine Christian, the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion comes into you. Because not only without it, you're not belonging with Christ. You can't do this in the Christian life. And so you say you, not, you haven't even heard. So what baptism did you receive? And they say John's baptism. Well, what was John's, uh, John's baptism? They, 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 they said, whatever John said is what we did. Okay, pay attention. Important for the rest of you. What did John do? Do you remember Jesus' eccentric cause? Do you remember John the Baptist, Jesus' your cousin? Lived out in the, the desert, the wilderness, wore camel fur boots and lived on a steady diet of crickets and wild honey. Do you remember John? Somebody do remember John? By the way, I was thinking this week, you know, if you're going to get wild honey in the wilderness, it presupposes that there are wild bees in the wilderness. And I don't think John had one of those cool white suits, you know, with a mask and a can of smoke, you know, to smoke the bees out. So, you know, so next time you go to the grocery store and you buy one of those little jars of honey and the cute little bear, you know, cute little bear tube. Re- remember remember John, Jesus' eccentric cause, okay? So, so who was John? Who was John? Do you remember John? John? John was, John was. people called him John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. Baptizer, the word Greek, baptized from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse, to dunk, and to to underwater why did they call him john the baptist because that's what he was doing and what was john saying john the baptist went around saying hey i'm here to prepare the way i'm here to prepare the way anybody that wants to turn away from their sin come and be baptized that's right if you want to turn away from your sin come and be dunked in the water be immersed in the water be baptized to show everybody that you're ready to turn away from sin anybody that wants to turn away from sin and he was doing that and then eventually another guy came along and he started quite a following. And some of his disciples started drifting over to this guy. And some people come to him and say, hey, Jesus. Uh, John, some of your disciples are going to that guy, Jesus. He's also a little eccentric himself. So what, what, What's the deal with that? Don't you care? And what did John say? John says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just, what? Here is a voice calling out in the wilderness. Prepare the way. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I, I, I'm not here to, you know, pour this to, to, to myself. I, I'm here to just be a finger that's pointing. I'm calling everybody to turn away from their sins. And the people come to me and say, okay, John, but, but what do we do with our sins? We're turning away, but how do we know forgiven? Aha! There goes the sin bearer. Hey, guys, there is the one who actually takes away the sins of the world. Hey guys, there, there he is. There is the one who will take upon himself the sins that you are turning away from. And John says, I just baptized with water. He will come baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you need to not just repent, but he says, you need to believe in him. You need to trust him. That's what Paul says in verse 4 of Acts 19. It's loaded with theology, guys. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Do you know what Paul is saying here? If you're taking notes, this is where you need to pay attention. Paul's essentially saying, and this is, this is the, the sort of theology found in the New Testament, that John's baptism was, in essence, only half the gospel. John comes along and says, hey, everybody, turn away from your sins. You need to repent. You need to say, I'm done with my sin, and I'm done with living this way. But John uh, but Paul says, but remember, John said to you, eventually somebody will come who will take away your sins, who will forgive you of your sins, who will be the sin bearer. So, John's baptism of repentance was after the gospel saying, I turned from my sin. And Paul says, The one who will take away the sin has come. His name is Jesus. Believe in him, trust in him. And Paul explains the whole gospel to them and says, The one has come. See? Apparently, these 12, about 12 guys in Ephesus, had only half the gospel. They knew the baptism of John. They repented and turned away from their sins, but they hadn't yet put their faith and believed in the one who takes away the sins of the world. They hadn't believed that one has come who will take upon himself the condemnation that we deserve so that in him we would no longer be condemned. The one has come who could blot out our transgressions. The one has come who would give us a clean slate and a clean start. The one has come, the Messiah, his name is Jesus. And when you place your faith in him, a transaction takes place, a great exchange. Not only are you given a new status as a child of God, but as we've been talking about all morning today, not only are you given a new status, but you're given a new experience. You're given a new experience as a child of God. As the Spirit of God comes and makes you new and transforms you, and all of a sudden you get these new desires and new affections. Last sign of genuine discipleship. Born of the Spirit, new desires, new affections. I can't wait until my son gets to be a little older. And he has his first crush. It's going to be so cute. I'm going to get home. Jenny, where's, where's Parker? Oh, he's out, he's out cleaning his car. What? He never cleans his car. His car is a pigsty. What's he cleaning his car for? Oh, you know, he's got a date. A date? walk inside, there's Parker, hair nicely parted, you know, or maybe it'll be this, I don't know, nicely Parker, right, Parker, Parker bumbling downstairs in his best clothes, I see him, I go, Parker, is that my cologne, where, 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 where where are you going, oh, I've I've got a, I've got a date, and when that new affection, listen, when that new affection grows to love, it becomes an explosive, powerful, life transforming force in his life. Has that happened to you? Christian, has that happened to you? The new effect. So, so, so some of you on here are going, I used to hate these songs. Now, I kind of like them. <laughs> the sermons at church, Pastor, used to make like no sense whatsoever. Now, Some of it actually kind of makes sense. Oh, he used to go on and on and on forever. It seemed like forever. He kind of still does. But it doesn't seem like it's as long as it used to be. What's going on? Something's wrong with Peter. No, actually, something is right with you. You've been made new. And new affections connecting with the love of Christ and explodes in your heart. And all of a sudden, Ah, the Christian life. All of a sudden, Pastor's like, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You don't focus on though. He will give you the desire, you know? So I delight, no, no, you start. Delight yourself in the Lord, but there's after. I don't care about the after. Delight yourself in the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is God. What stirs your affections for Jesus? Oh, better yet, better yet. What robs you? What robs you of those affections? That's what I want to ask this morning. What robs you of those affections for Christ? Because a lot of the things that rob our affections for Christ are not evil and bad in itself. They're morally neutral. But they have robbed. If you can spend hours effortlessly on Facebook, and yet it is an enormous Ordeal just to crack open the Bible, something is amiss. I love TV and television, TV and television, television. I love television and movies, but you know what? Can anybody relate to this? It's not long before I find funny on TV what God finds heartbreaking. I like sports. But if I watch sports too much, I start to care too much. And if what a 19-year-old boy does with the ball ruins your day, you've got a problem. What robs you, Christians, of your affection for Jesus? Hmm? What robs you of those intense affections for Jesus? And many of them, like I said, are more in literal. Could it be that how can the Spirit of God come and fill us when our lives are filled with so many things? How can the Spirit and the life of Christ come and fill me when I am full of myself? What robs you of your affection? For Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus. I didn't say affections for helping the poor or to serve the needy, which are great, phenomenal things, but for Jesus, what robs you of your? Let's finish this. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. For those of you that want to come up and argue with me about second baptism and Pentecostal theology and how we need the second baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that stuff, can we just agree on one thing, that being filled with the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit, needing more of the Spirit in our lives is a regular, intentional thing that we need to do all the time. Amen? Issue settled. Let's move on. (laughs) Practical relevance, here it is. Today, this room is full of almost Christians. Because we haven't done what it is that scripture says. is for those who have genuine faith. Jesus said in Matthew, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, you, and you can come on up. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom is near. And everybody, let's read this together. Repent. And Believe the good news say with me again repent and believe the good news the very words of jesus very words of jesus Very words of jesus of what it means To be a christian and what it means to live the christian life What do I mean if you are not a christian here today if you're not a christian here today and you're sitting there going I'm, not a christian, but i'm interested like what does it mean for me to be a christian? You need to hear this right now being a christian being a Christian, and i all do respect to people who may have shared with you, being a Christian is not just accept Jesus. It's not. Being a Christian is not just believe in God. It's not. Being a Christian, Jesus himself said is to repent and believe the good news the two sides of the same coin to repent and to believe the good news that's what it means to become a christian if you are a christian this morning and you tune me out going okay i'm done with that i'm done with that i'm done. listen the reason why the spirit of god has not come and filled us and live within our lives is because repenting and believing is not just a one-time thing that we do to say i'm to be a christian repenting and believing is something that we do every single day do you know this Repenting and believing is not a one time so I get into the kingdom, it's how we live in the kingdom every day. The reason why many of us today are spiritually apathetic, spiritually dead, the reason why we don't have passion desire in our hearts is because the Bible says repentance and believe is every day, every moment of our lives. Let me explain. What is repentance? What is repentance? Repentance is not God. I feel sorry for what I've done. Repentance also is not what some churches have taught, you know, is to turn around and go the other way. Repentance literally is to change your entire, your entire approach towards God. That's what repentance is to change your entire approach towards God. What do I mean? The essence of sin is not, is not doing some bad things. Essence is not disobeying something. Essence of sin is that we have taken the place that God rightfully belongs, and we have not acknowledged him as God. We have taken control over our lives. We've become masters of our own lives. We basically said to God, God, I'm going to take control. I'm going to live my life my own way, and nobody else tells me what to do. That's the essence of sin, and when we do that, The Bible says, then we replace God and we begin to then build our life, build our foundation on other things like jobs, like relationships, like money, like success, like fame. That's why Soren Kierkegaard, that famed philosopher, said, the essence of sin is building our identity on other things besides God. Because when we replace God from the center... We were created in such a way that we were meant to worship something. But when we have that thing that we were sent to center on, we remove that, then we will build our lives on other things. And what you and I normally think of sin, the bad behavior, is the result of placing our identity and our foundation on anything else besides God. That's why Martin Luther commented, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is have no other gods before me. Because when you remove God and you put something else at the center, the result is lying, murder. Why do you lie? Why do I lie? Why do I lie? I was just walking out the street, you know. And this woman came up to me with a census. And she's like, is this census? And I lied. I just lied. I said, oh, I already filled it out. I didn't fill it out. Why did I do that? I just said it. Oh, I, I, I filled it out. And I just walked away. Holy Spirit going, you stupid idiot. What, what? You know why I did that? Here's why. Because when my desire for someone else's approval is larger than the approval of my Heavenly Father, when something else is more important than the very thing that my family father gives, why do we commit adultery? It's because some other beauty is more beautiful and satisfying than the beauty of Christ. Why do we covet and envy? It's because the satisfaction of Christ is not in our soul. Repentance is not just saying, God, I've done some bad things. Pit, it's not God. I've disobeyed your laws and I need to get it right. It begins there, but true repentance goes much deeper. True repentance is admitting not just that we've done some bad things, but that we've taken control over our lives and we've run it and we've done it our own way. We've not acknowledged God as creator and we've built our life on other things and other foundations. We've built our life on relationships, money, success, and we've built our life on created things, and as a result, What is repentance? Repentance is, listen, Christians, listen, listen, repentance is saying, God, I'm going to uproot whatever my foundation is right now, and I'm going to build my foundation on another. I'm going to uproot the very thing that I've built my identity on, and I'm going to uproot that I'm going to build my life on another. God, I've used you all my life as a means to an end. I've used you to get the real treasure in my life, but I'm going to uproot that and you will be my real treasure. You will be my real treasure repentance is uprooting the very thing that we are building our lives on every single day we're tempted to do this and saying God you are at the center and now check this out why is it repentance not enough because the desire for the Christian life the goal of Christian life is not just to repent but it's to believe what do I mean you will not be able to repent of the lifeless gods and idols in your life you will not be able to repent and turn your back on sin turn your back on other things unless you are check this out captured and beautiful wonderful beauty of Christ Unless you are blown away by the beauty, sounds like wonder of Christ. Unless you are blown away by Christ is, you will not be able to uproot the thing that you are building your life on. You cannot uproot the false God's idol in your life by duty, by obligation, because you have to. The only thing that'll give you power to repent is seeing the beauty of Jesus to say, The only way that we'll have consistent victory over sin is not by effort. The only way we'll have consistent victory over sin is to be so enthralled, captured by the beauty of Jesus that we look at sin and we go, Why would I want that? Why would I want that? Repentance, faith, seeing Jesus, repentance, faith. If you're not a Christian, maybe you came here today and you're sitting there going you know peter i I realize maybe i need god i reckon i need god Uh, i've taken control of my life i've done it my way i thought i could be a little good king ruling over my kingdom but i'm not very good at this ruling kingdom thing i'm not i'm not and i've been a mess in my life i just jacked this thing up it's littered with failed relationships, littered with failed goals and ambitions if not that the very thing that i thought would give me life is the very thing that's enslaving me the very thing that i think that i thought would give me freedom is the very thing that's having me enslaved because i realize i can't live without it and my life is miserable You recognize your need for God and you recognize that you deserve God's judgment. But it's at that point that when you say, what do I need to do? For a lot of people, it goes terribly wrong because for a lot of people, then they start going, okay, what do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do. I'm going to approach this like I approach everything else. Give me the task. Give me the rules. What do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do. And I will. Friend, the problem with us is not we're not good people who've gone wrong in some ways and we need some directions for moral improvement. We don't need a life coach. We need a savior. We don't need a life coach. We need a savior. You can't do anything and of yourself to get yourself out. You don't need a life coach. You need a redeemer. You need a savior. And the savior of the world, Christmas says, has come. The savior of the world has come. And 2,000 years ago, he was born as a little babe, but he went to the cross, and our judgment, our condemnation, our sins, our idolatry, our lusts, our hatred, our jealousy, our envy. He takes it all on the cross and He dies the death that we should have died. And God says it's not about trying, it's about believing that not only does the death of Christ apply to you so that you no longer are ever under condemnation, but the life that Christ lived, the perfect righteous life becomes yours so that when God the Father sees you, He sees perfection. When he sees you, child of God, he sees perfection. He doesn't see you as you should be. He doesn't see you as you will be down the line. He sees you perfect. Is that good news? It's great. I think I've said enough, so I'm just going to give you and the Holy Spirit this ministry time to just speak to you for the next couple minutes. Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to speak to you. Father, we thank you for the good news that is the gospel. That we don't work towards a perfect life and give it to you and and say, you owe me now, God, but that you live the perfect life, you give it to us, and you say, love me and live for me. It is our desire, God, as we enter into the season of heaven, to remember that Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, lives in us as we anticipate and await the coming of Christ. And that you remind us today that the goal of the Christian life is to adore you, to say that you alone are worthy. And to say that our lives will be a praise unto you for ever and ever. Have a great week, you guys. Invite your friends, your family as we enter into Season of Events. See you next Sunday. Take care.